Hello and welcome to another episode of CM Conversations. I'm Jack Shute, Director and Head of CM Life Science, and I'm your host for today. In this episode, I wanted to explore the fast-growing medicinal cannabis industry, to look at the trajectory of the market in different parts of the globe, and the challenges facing the industry. To learn more about it, I had a conversation with Pierre Van Weperen, CCO of Grow Pharma and Managing Director of Grow Biotech UK. Both of those businesses are trying to unlock the medical potential of cannabis for those who need it, and I'm very grateful to Pierre for his time. Pierre himself has a really interesting background, having held multiple senior positions with major pharmaceutical companies like Wyeth Pharma, Merck, Novo Nordisk and Ashfield. We touched on what drew him to the cannabis space after working for such prestigious organisations. This is a market that I've been keen to learn more about for some time, and I took a great deal away from the conversation. I hope you do too. If you'd like to discuss any of the points raised in the episode, you can get in touch with us directly at cmconversations at charltonmorris.com. Anyway, that's all from me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Pierre from Grow Pharma. Well, um, no, thank you very much, Pierre, for, for joining us. Um, obviously, it's come from seeing the move that you made and, and trying to sort of get a little bit more exposure and understanding to medicinal cannabis, especially in the UK, because of such a, a, a significant growth over the last few years. But what I thought the, the best thing to do is for you to introduce yourself and, and mainly introduce Grow Biotech and, and a little bit more about the group and, and what, what you guys do, really. Okay, okay. Uh, Pierre Weyper, I'm Dutch. Um, came to the UK in 2008, working for a company called Wyeth. At that point, no, 2007, a company called Wyeth. Um, uh, so always been in pharmaceutical industry. Then Pfizer bought Wyeth. I left, went to MSD, uh, spent some time in MSD running immunology first and then diabetes. Went from diabetes in MSD to diabetes in Novo Nordisk. So I ran the sales team and then later sales and marketing in Novo Nordisk. Oh, yeah, Novo Nordisk in the UK. And then I was approached by a company called Ashfield. Ashfield are the biggest contracting organization in pharmaceutical industry in the UK. So um, nurses, um, reps, people on the phone, anything that you would want or need as a pharmaceutical industry company to increase your flexibility, uh, speed and agility in the field, we would we would do. And um, one of the last projects that I started in Ashfield was a medicinal cannabis company that wanted to start in the UK. And and the reason why they approached us is because medicinal cannabis in the UK is um, has a status of unlicensed medicine, which basically okay. means that you can't you can't promote it. So you can't do classical pharma, field team, go and knock on doctor's doors and talk about it. You have to wait until the doctor finds you, which is a bit of a um, difficult thing because if you're not allowed to promote it, you're not allowed to talk about yourself, because how is the doctor going to find you? So they, they came to us in Ashfield and we thought about through how we're going to do that. Uh, so we built their team. Um, and when I left Ashfield, I completely by coincidence um, was uh, contacted by a recruitment company um, and they were looking for what they were thinking was kind of commercial operations director in a cannabis company. Um, and this this was Grow, uh, Grow Biotech um, at that point in time. And the thinking that Grow had was knowing that 
the producers can't come into the country and, and promote their products. To do that in a compliant way with MSLs and everything else that you normally have in a pharmaceutical company would be a significant investment in a market that is virtually non-existent. So early 2018, 2019, yeah. with a few handful of patients in the UK. So to do that investment and do that setup would be kind of um, a little bit out of kilter. So Grow was set up to act as an agent for companies who produce medicinal cannabis. Um, we have the medical team. We have all that classical setup with compliance, sign-off, and everything else. And uh, we don't promote products, but we, we educate people. So we right. train and educate doctors about medicinal cannabis, how to use it, um, if, if you want to start using it, what kind of hoops that you need to jump through with your CCG, with your uh, compliance people in the CCG, how do you get your FP10s, all of these things. And if at some point in time, you then will want to start prescribing, we can talk about the products with you. So that's the setup that we have chosen. And um, as, as, as almost every company in, in, in medical cannabis, um, there was a lot of money of people who were investing in it. And, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about companies setting themselves up. But there was very little understanding of the healthcare market. And there was very little understanding about how doctors work and what doctors need to hear and how you communicate to doctors. So I think I was the, the second person in the UK who joined a medical cannabis organization from a pharmaceutical background right? Okay. And, and, and helping them to set it up. So we, we spend a lot of time on, on um, doing training, education of, of healthcare professionals. And within Grow Group, as it is now, there are basically four, four companies, Grow Biotech. We do a lot of research and development, not into patients and treatments, but into uh, how to improve the yield and the quality of the, of the harvest. Because if you can reduce cost of, of growing and production, you can reduce cost for patients. So that's that. Then we have Grow Pharma. And Grow Pharma is basically a joint venture between the Grow Group and a company called IPS. And IPS are a 20, 22 years old importer, distributor, manufacturer, pharmacy of specialty products in the UK. So they have a long history of uh, importing products, uh, wholesaling them, dealing with prescriptions, sending them to patients. So between Grow and IPS, we talk to the healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals want to start prescribing. Uh, we will give them the list of products. Prescription goes to IPS. IPS will talk to the patient and send it then to the patient at home. Which, right, okay. Oh, it's also in these COVID times is quite handy. So you can yeah. do your online consultation with the doctor. Prescription comes digitally to us, digitally to us, and prescription is sent to the patient at home. So that's a, that's a very neat uh, way of working. Yeah. Um, and then we have some other uh, grow international and grow trading, especially the international bit is interesting because obviously the UK, the UK is a little bit behind markets as Germany, Australia, Canada, and the US. But there are also markets who are even further behind. So yeah, and that, that was something that I was going to say was that it, it, 
I didn't know where the UK sits versus, I know Canada is seemingly out on its own at the front with the size of the manufacturers and also the maybe liberal thinking to, to look at this 10, 15 years ago or however long ago it was. So the, the, the situation is, is the UK in a position where it's at the front of Europe? I get the feeling that there's Germany, but then also if you look at the countries that have always had a liberal um, opinion to cannabis as a, as a drug, maybe not as a medicine, are the countries like the Netherlands and recently Portugal, are they actually looking at this as a medical point of view as well? Are they further ahead than the UK? Yeah, so, so you're right. Canada is probably the most uh, advanced. The US are quite well advanced, but it differs per state. Uh, and they also do a different, they also do a bit of a different system. I'll, I can talk to that in a bit. Australia is very well advanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Germany is number four on the list. And, and what you see with, with almost every country is they go through a kind of three-year adoption curve. In, in year one, something changes in legislation that will allow medical cannabis to be prescribed. Um, and people are a little bit twitchy and doctors are a little bit nervous and there's a stigma that you're prescribing cannabis and where's the evidence and all of that. So, mm-hmm. so everybody is a little bit kind of cautious at doing almost nothing. Um, then patients start to kind of find the doctors and, and demand increases. Um, and that then goes with a couple of other legislation changes around can you import the products? Can you manufacture in the country yourself? Uh, prices start coming down, uh, which makes it all more accessible. And then in year three, you suddenly see things really take off. So Australia right. is in year three. Year one, they had 500 patients. Year three, year two, I think they had 3,000 patients, and now they have 30,000. Uh, right. So, so that's, that's the kind of the curve. Um, Germany has, I think, 60,000 patients now. So they were, in, they were almost in year three. Uh, the UK is in kind of year two, two and a half max. And, and um, we're, we're, UK legislation is actually particularly complicated versus the German ones and the others, where in the other countries you can promote it. So in Germany, you can just go and talk to a doctor and talk about the products. This unlicensed medicine status in the UK makes it slightly more complicated. Um, and we've also had quite a lot of issues with being able to import products. So initially, home office, because cannabis is a Schedule two drug, there are mm-hmm. 200 Schedule two drugs, which is not a problem. Uh, normally, you get a prescription or you have a few doctors who want to have it. Uh, you go to where it is, you import it. RPS do that every day. With cannabis... Uh, home office kind of did a Schedule 2 plus uh, regimen. There is no such thing, but that's what they did. So you couldn't, you couldn't import, you could only import product if you had a prescription. But so you, get, you need to have a patient going to the doctor, a doctor needs to write a prescription, prescription and has to come to us. We then go to home office to get an import license. With the import license, you then go to the country who exports it to get the export license, mm-hmm. then you can do it. But sometimes that took four months or two months. And the prescription is only valid for a month. So, right, so okay. <laughs> that, that didn't really work. So um, it, it has changed now. 
So we can actually import easily, uh, easy, more easy. Uh, we can make it better. So supply is not an issue, but with those supply restrictions, became pricing became an issue. So yeah. sometimes you want to import products from the Netherlands, but the Netherlands, very, very uh, smart as they are, they have organized everything around cannabis uh, through an office of uh, medical cannabis, government organized, so they control the exporting, but they also control the pricing on the exporting. So you would have a patient who would need whatever, 20, 30 grams of product, and the Dutch would say, yeah, you can have that, but it costs you 2,000 pounds for the distribution and the, and the transport to do it, which which makes it ridiculous. So you'll have these yeah. stories from from the past with, and there's still some of them pick up, where in the news and the news media where patients complain that they end up spending two and a half thousand pounds a month on their medical cannabis. And some of that is simply because of distribution cost and transport cost. Mm. All of that has gone down significantly. So we are now, our products are now, the, the, the pricing range is, is a lot lower. You're kind of somewhere around 200 pounds a month, which is very reasonable. Yeah. Um, and what we also know is that, and that's why I mentioned the 200, we also know that there is a massive black market in the UK where around 1.4 million people use cannabis for medicinal purposes. So basically smoke it for medicinal yeah. purposes. Yeah. The problem with that is, um, A, it's illegal. Uh, you have to go to a dealer, et cetera, so you can be arrested. You actually don't know what you're smoking. Uh, mm -hmm. There was no medical oversight There's and all no of that. Regulation There's no regulation. There's no regulation. You're you're taking it for pain, but actually maybe the ratio between THC and CBD that is in in the product that you get is is not the best for that for that symptom that you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So having having the option of transferring that into medical oversight in a legal way is is important, but. And that's why I mentioned price. If if that legal option costs you a thousand pounds a day a month, versus you spending two hundred pounds on your black market, well, what are you going to do? Is it? Yeah. So so to get those things closer, that's what we've been working on. So it it is actually uh, moving. The dynamic is increasing, and and we've been doing a lot of work. We just launched the website OpenCannabis.uk, which is supported by us. Um, but it's it's all disease awareness, it's um, information, uh, because there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of lack of knowledge. Even we, we did a poll, I think 28% of patients who use cannabis black market now didn't even know that you could go to a doctor and get it. Right, and, okay, and, so it's, it's a lack of knowledge across the lack country of knowledge. at the moment. Yeah, lack of knowledge. And what you see is the stuff that the press picks up with these, I have to sell my house to pay for my cannabis thing, which doesn't really help if, yeah. you, if, you're, if you're considering that. So well, it doesn't help when you can't give the other side of the story. It's not legal for you to be able to... I mean, is there a limit to how much you can say without it being deemed that you're promoting that then? Is, do, yeah, do so we can't... Do research we, or? We can't We can't talk about products. We can't talk about product names. Um, I can't, I can't put up a website. Uh, even if you're a traditional farmer, you can do a website for your product. I mean, you can do, the only thing you can do is 
is to patient leaflet text on it. You can't promote it, but I can't even do that. So, right. so we can't talk about products, the, the, the companies. We can talk about the companies, and, and we are now spending a lot of energy and time and energy on education, training around the science behind it, and then the data that are being collected. So we can talk to the doctors about that, and especially when they are becoming interested. They, they now know after being in the market for two years. They now, they now know us. Yeah. We've been so we've been so active around this training and education that people people now know where to find us. So there's a much more active stream than that. Um, so if it, it, so you look at that trajectory and you know it's going to happen. And I mean, these are these are black market patients, but there are also a lot of patients now at fibromyalgia, epilepsy, spasticity who would potentially benefit from it, but they just don't know where to go. Mm. And they don't. And they don't want to go to the black market, so they do nothing. Yeah. I think about opioids. How many people are on opioids and now want to stop doing that? Yeah. They could look at this as an option, but it's it's um, because it's not on the NHS yet. So you need to go to a private doctor. You need to get a private prescription. So there's yeah. there's still a little. And that bit was of one of the things I was going to say is that it, it, you, the NHS isn't really a big advocate for it at all yet. I think there's maybe is there one. That's that's been approved to be used on the NHS. One one product that has yeah. CBD within it, but once the NHS buys into that, whether they ever will do, it then opens the door up completely. I assume is that something that you get involved in with lobbying or research and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's a very good, that's an important point. So there are three products that are licensed, and um, they they got licensed because the the, the problem. Need to do one little step back. The difficulty with cannabis is you have you have this THC and CBD as as kind of components in it, mm-hmm. and um, THC is 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 the bit that kind of is um, activating. If you smoke it, that's the bit that actually gets you high. But in the in the doses on the medical cannabis product, that's not going to happen. But it it deals mainly with things like pain uh, and around that CBD does the opposite, calms you down, relaxes you, increases blood flow and muscles. So depending on what you're taking it for, you need to look at whether you want THC or CBD or different, a specific ratio between the two. Because if you combine them, they actually work together quite nicely. So what you have is, is a range of products in the market. And, um, but it also, what works for you doesn't have to work for me. We can take the same product with the same ratio for mm-hmm. the same reason, but it's very personal. So to, if you know that, then it becomes very difficult to do clinical trials around that because you need, yeah. to kind of ex- you need to experiment a little bit with the dosage. You, as I said, what works for you doesn't necessarily work for me. So the, the traditional concept of randomized controlled trials where I compare tablet A with tablet B, in this, it just doesn't work. So what happened is that uh, the company who have, who have managed to license those product, products, they narrowed the indication down as much as they could to make sure that you kind of eliminate all those variables. Right. So it's licensed for two or three forms from epilepsy, very resistant, treatment-resistant epilepsy. But it's also quite expensive because of all the clinical trials that they had to do. So mm-hmm. it's, it's on the NHS, but it's kind of all the way back in the pathway 
because of because of the cost. We are we are now looking at um, working with with companies who have done clinical trials but have more room on a patient pricing level to look at that. But price is only one thing. The NHS will still want evidence. Um, uh, we can't we can't do the randomized controlled trials because they are so complicated to do. But what we can do is um, observational studies and uh, real world evidence. So yeah. almost every patient that goes through us at some point in time will go into patient data pool where the where the clinicians fill out all the data around the patient. So we then and then we pull those out. In a, in a kind of real-world evidence. And with that, we will go to the NHS and, and look at what is reasonable. So you need that combination of availability, data, and affordability. Okay. Uh, just coming back to something you said before, because I think you mentioned there that you were one of the first or the second, I think you said, um, in the UK, notable person to have moved from pharma, big pharma, into this smaller yeah. world what made you do that what was the the attraction what was the appeal to to this space really yeah it, 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 it i've always been i've always been a bit of a, a, a i like the adventure because <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a uh, you, you know i like the i i think i maybe i should, i like i like making a difference i like having impact in what i do and um Big Pharma is not necessarily the place anymore where as an, as an individual in a country or even as a country manager, the, the influence that you have on strategy development is, is actually quite limited. And, and um, being in a startup industry in a market that isn't, isn't even really there has to develop gives you so much opportunity to actually help and make that difference so that that really fits with what i want to do um, it, it was just coincidence that i that i had worked with cannabis when i was in ashfield and had some ideas about what i thought that had to be changed especially this we, we kind of invented the word for it the, the pharmacus, pharmaceuticalization of cannabis industry that's what we called it because right. it, it, yes. it was all this it was all this you know, there was, a, there was a lot of people, especially in Canada and in the U.S., they missed Amazon.com, they missed uh, 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 Airbnb.com, they missed something yeah. else, and they were, I am not going to miss the cannabis boom. So they, they, they all threw loads yeah. of money at it. And then, like, okay, and now what? We, we're growing this stuff, and, and, but we, we, we are finding it very difficult to actually create markets around it because never they've never mm. learned those were investors and investment companies and bankers and everybody else but they never really worked with with patients and doctors or pharmaceutical markets so not not aware of rules not aware of regulations how do you do things how do you communicate with doctors what do you what do you tell them what do doctors want to hear and if you and if you look at this in a in a from a pure communication perspective doctors doctors if you go to a doctor about a new treatment it's this is the name this is this is what it looks like these are the randomized controlled trials this is what nice says about it 
this is what the NHS says about it. It's on your formularies. You can type it in your computer. It'll pop up. These mm-hmm. are the indications. This is the side effect. And this is what it costs. That's what doctors are used yeah. to. And here we are. This way. This is medicinal cannabis. Um, it's not really licensed for all these things because there's no randomized controlled trial. The evidence is mounting and massive, but it's all it's all uh, anecdotal and it's all individual patients. Yeah. It's not on the NHS. There is no nice uh, uh, approval for it. Uh, you may need to experiment with the dosage a little bit, which will then impact the cost. And by the way, patients have to pay for it themselves. The, the, the gap between those things couldn't be bigger. If you so, have a choice between one or the other to to treat, despite one maybe being better in the long run, you, you're going to go for the free one, the one that's been approved, the one that's What been are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And patients, patients in the UK are obviously used to not having to pay for their medicines. Yeah. So to move from a uh, uh, NHS free, more or less painkiller, to having to pay for it and go to a private doctor, and the doctor is him or herself at, at the kind of start of understanding how this all works. So they're not going to be they're not going to be that convincing to tell the patient on why to do it and how to do it. So it's it's a it's a very difficult situation. So I I really felt that, and my medical team. Uh, we all, we've all, we all have a pharmaceutical industry background, so we're, we're just really trying to do this properly, yeah. and, and and educate people and help them, and don't run around and, and shout about things, because that's not going to get things done. Mm. So it's it's uh, yeah. So that's the attraction. I mean, it, we know it's going to happen. We know the UK is on the same trajectory as every other country. We know the demand is there. We know it works. I mean, we every day we get we get stories from patients who who call us or send us emails or tweet about how how fantastic they feel. But take epilepsy, children with epilepsy, with three, four, five hundred seizures a day. It's it's, it's horrible. It's really going yeah. to one, two, or sometimes even none. You, right. you you properly get your life back, and not just the child, but also everybody around them. Because yeah, of you, course. You can't, you can't do nothing. You, there's nothing you you can't travel. You can't go on a plane. You can't you can't leave the house properly. You can't leave them in somebody's care. And and now suddenly your child sits there and is calm and quiet. Mm. So, and so, it, so, with that, is there is there a, a continuing um, development of the best way to deliver this this drug? Because of course, children will have to be. I'd assume it's edible, or I'm not sure, but what's the, the the best way is there being proven a best way for it to actually be uh, delivered into the into the body yeah it, it, it there are several different ways now obviously you can you can vape yeah uh with uh, so not not smoke i don't like the smoking bit but you can you got vapors where you put the flour in and it gets heated like a like an e-cigarette more or less mm-hmm. almost. you can do that with the water vapor um, and yeah Stuff like that, um, and then you have um, um, oils, and those are these are. I mean, the medical cannabis oils are not the same oils that you can buy in Holland and Barrett or whatever. That's very low dose and and very low grade quality product. Um, but yeah, so the, the oils uh, which you basically take drops into under your tongue. Uh, there are now tablets, and we're working on powders. That you can put in in a drink, 
but to, to make CBD. CBD is basically uh, uh, lipophilic. So to make it soluble in, in water is quite complicated, but we're working on that to do that. Um, so tablets, that. Uh, there are people working on patches, and but it's, it's, it's quite difficult to get it to penetrate through your skin. It, it can work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are people who swear. I mean, there are if you, again. If you go to to a, um, a, a supermarket, you can probably buy some CBD cream, which honestly <laughs> does nothing <laughs> because the dosage <laughs> the dosage is not high enough, and it doesn't get through your skin. But people believe in it, and it makes them sleep better and everything else. But and and it may do it a little bit, but it, this is not the medicinal product that we're talking about. But mm. yeah, so those are probably the four oils, vaping, powders, powders, tablets, patches are the five five different things we're yeah, looking at. Because the, the oil and the CBD oil that you see people promoting on things like social media and you see people like athletes claiming that it creates huge recovery benefits and all these yeah. things. It, from what you're saying, it seems like it, that's true. It does have those benefits. However, is that true of the low dosage CBD oil from Holland and Barrett, or do you still need a, a medicinal dose to still be able to improve that recovery? If you see what I mean? Yeah. So I obviously need to be careful that I don't get anybody uh, <laughs> suing me, but uh, the, the um, when you, if you compare what you, you the, the oils that you buy in in um, Holland Barrett have only CBD and they they're probably three four percent CBD so you're looking at uh, five milligrams per milliliter maybe up to ten milligrams per milliliter and the strongest ones will be twenty or thirty milligrams per milliliter. The stuff that that rugby players use and boxers so we're working with a company now. Uh, and they're engaged with with uh, engaging with Tyson Fury, for example, right. to look at um, uh, higher dose products because it actually does work. If you take if you take a hundred milligram per milliliter CBD product and you take a few milliliters of that, your recovery time is actually faster. Uh, your bruising will disappear faster. That's why. Every you know the, the guys in the UK who have done this brand. What is it? CBD forty five. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cruise, uh, for example. Yeah. yeah. So here and Cruise, for funnily enough, is also supporting our open cannabis uh, initiative because they 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 know that it that it works. So they they actually uh, almost every rugby player uses it. Boxers use it. Golfers use it. People who do high impact sports. Because your recovery with those proper doses of CBD is better. Um, now, the difference between that and the medicinal bit, um, you'll, you'll have medicinal CBD that you have to, have to be prescribed because of the purity of the product and the quality of the product is just better. It's just pharmaceutical grade products. The other uh, thing with medicinal versus what you can buy if you need THC, none of those products that you can buy online or in the shops have THC in it. So if you're looking at CBD to sleep better, uh, or for anxiety, stress, relaxation, all of that stuff, fine. Uh, and you can probably get some high dose 
uh, online that will work for you. If you're looking at PTSD, pop-up spasticity with epilepsy and everything else, go and see mm -hmm. a doctor and don't experiment with that. Because That's not the, even going to be anywhere near enough or anywhere no. near regulated or anywhere near the quality exactly. that you need to, to treat a serious issue as opposed to exactly. yeah. recovering from a session or recovering from a fight yeah. or walking, a match. Walking, or walking into a wall that is called not a rugby player or something else and having an epileptic <laughs> seizure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, would, I, would do, I would do definitely I go to the doctor. Um, and, and the prices actually are not that different. If you... If you buy some high-dose CBD product online versus the high-dose pharma-grade CBD product that you get to a doctor, it's not that different, but you know what you get. Yeah. Now, so that's CBD, where you talk about epilepsy and all of these. But once you move into treating pain, fibromyalgia, um, uh, uh, oncology uh, pain, those things you need you need probably need some THC. You can only get that on prescription. So that's yeah. that's where you need to see the doctor. If you if you need that, there's no point in looking at stuff. That that's where the illegality online. part of it comes in with the THC. That's, and, yeah. Exactly. Because that's what you buy when you when you smoke pot, you you smoke THC. Mm. That's that's what you get. Um, uh, but you don't need that much. And and the difference is going back a little bit to mode of administration, we do know that when you use it through a vaping machine or an e-cigarette, it will get into your blood quicker than if you take a pill or an oil. Right. Uh, and, and the risk, you may have seen those things in Canada, they do, they do CBD gummy bears and all of that stuff. Yes, I've so seen those. Pop yeah. edibles. The problem with that is... Um, it actually takes quite long before it starts to work. So you're probably halfway through your pack of, of uh, gummy bears. Yeah. And then suddenly it kicks in. And you've, but then you've, no, eaten you've taken too pack. many. And, yeah. <laughs> you've taken too many. <laughs> Not very smart. So, so um, don't, don't do that. Or if you do it, just be aware that you, that you don't go through half of your pack before you do just... <laughs> Just to calm. So yeah, right. so there's a difference between. So if you need, if you need, and you see it with, and there are some videos of people on on Twitter, epilepsy patients or Parkinson's patients, who, who actually vape, and they and they start the session with being like that, and and their whole body is shaking. Yeah. And like three minutes in, you see them calm down, and and you see the the, the seizures and all the all the uh, shaking disappear. So that's that's how quick it goes where you take um, the vaping bit. Oils take a bit longer. It probably takes a couple of hours because it really were before it really, but then also stays longer in your body. So you take, you take your oil twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. If you do vaping, you probably need to do it more often because it, it works faster, but it also disappears faster. And right, what we're okay. looking at with, and what we're looking at with the tablets is, is do slow release tablets. So you only have to take one day, for example. Uh, that, that's the technology advancing in there. Yeah, great. I mean, the, 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 the idea of the UK being behind the likes of Canada, the likes of Germany, potentially in, in Europe, and, and a few others, you mentioned Australia as well, and the US, of course. Where do you see things moving in the next five to 10 years? Because you mentioned that everybody's on the three-year curvature, maybe slightly yep. longer than three years. 
as you reach that three-year point, where, where does it go from there? What, what does 10 years' time look like? Is it, is it NHS approval or how do, how do things look in your eyes? Yeah, but, but we are working very hard and we're not alone doing that. The companies, companies that we work with are doing lots of research, um, trying to pin things down about what flower or what ratio works best for certain uh, um, uh, symptoms that you want to treat. Um, the, the, there's a couple of things that really need to fall into place. Um, uh, it's, it's creating that evidence. It's making sure that people know where to go and how to ask for it. Um, the stigma has to go a little bit because doctors are still worried that they start prescribing medicinal cannabis and their colleagues go, what are you doing? Um, mm. So, so um, the, no, the number of doctors, even in private practice, is, is not significant enough yet to get a proper dynamic go. It's growing, it's growing, but it's not like they're, they're not five, there are not 500 doctors in the UK who are prescribing medicinal cannabis, whilst there are, what, 20,000, 30,000 specialists. Um, so people need to be a bit more informed. That's one of the things that we're trying to do with that open cannabis. Healthcare providers need to be more informed. They need to be sure about the supply. Pricing needs to come down. So we, we actually compete properly with that black market so people don't have to go to the black market. And then you have the evidence of medical oversight, quality products. Uh, you, you have a proper decision about are you taking the right regimen for what you're trying to do. And then with the evidence over time, we will go and engage with the NHS. And we will, we will talk to people and go... Show, show them what the evidence is because it does work, and and then it becomes a, then it becomes almost a financial question, because mm. if we know, and that's that's a bit that scares people at the moment. If you're if you're working in in the NHS or in noise, I mean, I've mentioned that 1.4 million patients. Those are that's the 1.4 million group of people who are taking cannabis now. If they were to all move into the NHS at once. Yeah. There are not. There is no capacity to deal with 1.4 million patients. Mm -hmm. There is no money to deal with that, and there is definitely no money to pay for their even. Even it would be, if it would be 100 pounds a month times 1.5 billion million. That's a massive bill at the end of the year. Yeah. So, I can see the reluctance of the system to say, "Bring me proper evidence before I make that decision." So, what I think will happen because of all of this. The evidence is easily gathered or easiest gathered in areas like epilepsy, spasticity, uh, pain, chronic pain, people who have been using opioids and other chronic painkillers and suffer from side effects from that. Um, Cancer-related pain where you actually can't do anything else than, than uh, morphine or God knows whatever. Mm -hmm. So those will probably be the areas where we can more easily than in others make the case about giving those people that option to do that. And it's not going to be a, um, it's, it's never going to be first choice in the pathway. You will, you will do the traditional bits first. If they stop working or if they are not an option anymore, look at cannabis. And once you have that, just, try it so you will see smaller scale experiments 
you will see more evidence that will help it in those indications. And that's probably where we are five, five years from now. Right. In pain, epilepsy, et cetera, better acceptance um, of it and, and more evidence around it. Maybe 10 years from now, it's going to be more indications or, or more symptoms that you're, that you're trying to deal with. But that would, that would be the way. I mean, even, right. even in Australia or in, in, in the U.S., it's a different system, for example. In the U.S., you, you go and see your doctor. The doctor agrees that for what you have, you should potentially try cannabis. And then you go with that. You get a license to buy it. And with that license, you go to a pharmacy or a dispensary where you have a conversation with the, the pharmacist in the dispensary. And I say, okay, last, last month I tried this THC-CBD ratio. It doesn't seem to work anymore. Maybe I should play around with that a little bit more. And then the pharmacist can make that decision with you or maybe changing what you, what you get. So the impact on the healthcare system is a lot lower than if you would have to do that every time and every month and go and see your doctor to have that mm. conversation. So, but if, if we wanted to work better and if we wanted to, to have broader uptake, we probably also need to change the system a little bit where prescribing pharmacists or pharmacists or maybe a, a nurse specialist in, in a clinic can have a brief conversation with you Look at what was happening with your symptoms. How do you feel? Are there any side effects? Et cetera, et cetera. So what do we do next to reduce the impact on the system and to make it cheaper? So I think that's where we need to, we need to find ways to make it more accessible. And accessibility is that combination of affordable, not, not the biggest impact on the system and proper supply around it. Mm. Yeah, great. I mean, it's... Um it's a really interesting subject, which is why I wanted to, to speak with yourself about it and get a real understanding as to what is being done in the UK, of course, understanding outside of that as well. But in the UK, it seems to be over the last, like you say, maybe two years or so, things have started to gain traction and there seems to be a little bit more of an open-mindedness towards that, that there maybe wasn't, it, it probably wasn't even really thought about and um, besides a black market and a, a bit of a sort of, you should try this. Um, it seems to be moving in the right direction. It is. It is. Uh, there, and there's a, there's one of the, one of the things that there's always a worry with politicians and people who make the rules around uh, making cannabis legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, so there, there is this, uh, if we, if we legalize medical cannabis, are we opening the door to legalizing cannabis? That's a whole different conversation, but people mix those things up. Yeah. So it's, that's, that's one of the bits that we really uh, are, are working on to make sure that people understand. Uh, if you do one, that doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically do the other. But at the same time, in the background, you see, obviously, there's a lot of uh, uh, activism around legalizing cannabis, which then confuses the discussion again. But we've got yeah. with, if you go on Twitter, the people who are following medical cannabis are the same people who are following legalizing cannabis. And the legalizing cannabis people are shouting hard or just as hard as the people who want medical cannabis. So it's a bit of a, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking at that from the outside, whether you're a politician or a member of the public or a doctor, 
it's very easy to get confused about what the hell is going on mm. and, and what choices to make. So that's that's where we need to make progress. And and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, and I'm very, very pleased to, to, to be with you with you and to be able to talk about that. I mean, I can talk to you afternoon about, about this stuff. But <laughs> it's Because it, it actually does make a difference. If you see these kids with epilepsy or people with pain or, or, or adults with, with um, uh, seizures, you see them calm down and you see them actually be able to function and, and, and get up out of their wheelchair and, and, and make themselves a cup of coffee instead of having to do something. But that, those things are, they are remarkable. We know that cannabis does stuff in your body. We're, we're the, it has been used for centuries by the, by the Chinese and God knows what. We only made it illegal over the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. And, but, but we know it works, but we now kind of have to kind of reinvent this whole industry and start looking again around the science. Receptor 1, CBD receptor 1, CBD receptor 2, what does what, how do they work? The other 170 um, cannabinoids that are in a plant, what do they do? How do they interact? You can, you can, for example, you can synthesize CBD completely in the lab, make it. And it doesn't work as well as the stuff that you get out of a plant. Right. You can do so the same thing with tea. There quite, is something yeah. that we still need to understand. So, so, and that costs, there's the little money that has to be involved to do all the research, a lot of people, but it, it needs kind of a bit of bigger, broader embracement of let's look at this. And you see that happening. Australia has done that. Canada has done that. The US have done that. And the, the, the scientific community in the UK are, is ready to do this. Mm-hmm. And there are a few, few people who've been um, uh, lecturing at universities about the cannabinoid system. But as a doctor, when you go and you train to become a doctor, nobody tells you about the cannabinoid system. And then suddenly you got this patient in front of you who wants cannabis. You go like, what? <laughs> and, if you, and, and if you divide the 1.4 million by 30,000 GPs, you probably should work out that every GP has at least 50 or maybe even 100 yeah. patients who are already doing this, but they're not telling you. Mm. At the same time, you're prescribing them painkillers, you're prescribing them other things, but the patient is maybe too shy to talk to you about it. So it's... It's, it's all these things where we need to kind of emancipate patients to talk about it to their doctor. And if they do that, what do they say? And what do they ask? Get the doctors to be more comfortable to have the conversation and, and get the doctors more educated to do that. So there's a, there's, and that's, that's why I'm so excited about this. We're, we're yeah. in this yeah, we're year two, and there's so much work to do. So we're organizing loads of webinars and, and things online where people who have experience talk about it. You can ask questions and, and educate people and, and loads of people attend those things. So yeah. yeah, the dynamic is happening, it's changing. We we expect in our own forecasts by the end of next year that there will be somewhat 20, 25,000 patients in the UK maybe. Right, okay. And that, that's, that, that's and that's not far off from the Australian curve, because mm-hmm. we've the system. The system is now established. You have these you have these specialist cannabis clinics where where you can go. So if you if you want it, you don't. <coughs> so you don't have to 
roam the internet to find a doctor who will be able to prescribe it. You can actually find one, supply chain is sorted, prices have come down, information is, there, there's, there's more information out there. So it is actually all working in the right direction. Yeah, it's just a bit of a slow, I think the, it may be this way in all countries, I don't know, but it's always a case of a little bit of resistance to change within the UK government and within the UK systems. Whether that was the case in Canada 10 or 15 years ago, whether that's the case in Australia and Germany and places. One of the things that, or as as a sort of final thought from my side really is the, the countries, specifically Netherlands, that is known for its legalization of cannabis as a whole, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't seem to be that far in front of anybody else. If anything, they may be behind on a medicinal point of view. I know that pharmaceutical and the pharmaceutical industry in the Netherlands maybe isn't as large as the UK and Germany and Switzerland and the US, but is, is, do you think that's what is put down to the actual the, the medicinal side of it? Or are they sort of, because you can get it anywhere, it doesn't really need to be regulated from a medicinal point of view? Yeah, it's, I think that there are, there are probably three things that fall, in, fall into that kind of... This kind of if, if, if you have a large legal black market, which not the right thing to combine, but legal, <laughs> legal market, legal recreational market, that's what I should say. If you have a large recreational, legal recreational market, there will, be, there will be a significant number of people in there who are taking it for medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and if you've been doing that for a while, I mean, some of the, some of the people that, we, that, we, that now come to us because they want to move to legal market, are extremely well educated and informed about cannabis and, and plants and ingredients and terpenes and all the all the different cannabinoids they and the strains they really know what they're doing and and um, they 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 are quite comfortable what they're doing on the recreation or on the on the legal legalized market so they don't feel the need to do that. Um, the other, the other part of the equation, you will, that, that thing around pricing, um, there, there is a, especially in the early days when we had to import, I was talking about earlier, small imports, prices were quite high. Mm-hmm. So if you're then on the, on, the, on the black market or on the recreational market, why would you decide to pay twice as much for what you think you already know that you're doing? So that's mm-hmm. not very attractive. Third thing is simply talking to your doctor about it. I mean, how many people take paracetamol and never talk to their doctor about it or ibuprofen and buy buckets of it and don't Mm -hmm. talk to their doctor about it? Because somehow you don't want to talk to your doctor about it. You're afraid to tell because you don't know what he's going to say, whatever. So so there there is this little threshold about how do I start that conversation and and what is the doctor going to say if I do that? And then at the same time, that, that gap between what you traditionally do with randomized controlled trials and the evidence for cannabis and, and the lack of those randomized controlled trials is a, is a difficult hoop for doctors to jump through. They are used, they are trained up to do evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. If I do this, what is that going to do? If I... If I if I treat if I treat 100 patients with product X or Y, 
how many of them are not going to die because of me doing that. That's a different conversation than cannabis doesn't cure people. Cannabis deals with symptoms. Yeah. If you if you have cancer, there's your cannabis, whatever cannabis you take, is not going to cure your cancer, but it will deal with some of the symptoms. So this is not a cure for things. But traditionally, we look at, uh, uh, we treat your diabetes, we treat your hypertension, we treat that. We, we, we try to treat the underlying disease, and by treating that, the symptoms will disappear. Mm-hmm. This is something where the underlying disease or treatment hasn't worked. You still have the symptoms. So you, you don't cure people. It's, it's, a different, it's a different way of looking at how you use treatment. And that, that's, a, that's a jump people have to make. Mm. About life that. quality instead of fixing something that was wrong. Exactly, exactly. And, and are you willing to pay for that? Uh, are, are doctors willing to spend time on doing that? Um, mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's a bit of all of that. It will happen. It, it, once, once, you, once people are more comfortable to talk about it, once doctors are more uh, educated around it and more comfortable to have the conversation with their patients, these things, and then you, then you will see an increase in people using it. And with the increase in people using it, you will see, you see an increase in people talking about how much it helps. Them. Yeah. So and that's it becomes the kind of, a snowball yeah. effect that you're looking to get yeah. going. Yeah. Well, um, no, it's been, it's been excellent to, to hear, um, hear your thoughts and hear your sort of plan. And, and the company that you're part of now, it seems to be a really exciting, really big part of, of, um, of the market and, and trying to actually implement some of that change. So it sounds exciting. It's something that we'll definitely be keeping a really close eye on. And I think that as and when this continues to um, to grow, it's, it can only really be a good thing. I don't really understand the resistance to it almost, but I think, like you say, it's a slow process. And it seems that if other countries that have been through this process and we're following those paths, it can only go in one direction. So when, no, it's been, it's been great to get your insight and your thoughts on this. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, Jack. Loved it. Thank you. That was my conversation with Pierre. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great to hear from you, whether to discuss further on medicinal cannabis or if you're interested in being involved in the next podcast. You can get in touch with me via LinkedIn or use the email address I mentioned in the introduction cmconversations at charltonmorris.com. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to CM Conversations wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. I've been Jack Shoot. Goodbye.